Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I discuss the idea behind factor timing for trying to build and track active investment strategies that try to take advantage of some of the more popular investing factors out there. From rotating among the top value and momentum ETFs, and even investing based on the overall business cycle and macro landscape, these are the approaches that we discuss. We share some of the inputs into how we rank ETFs and how we go about implementing these models on Validia. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion. Okay, today we're going to talk about um, factor timing or factor rotation. And I think that there's, you know, different opinions among people a lot smarter than us as to whether or not investors can rotate between different factors in the market, um, and things that are working and things that maybe didn't work. And then maybe try to take advantage of mean reversion or when these factors sort of come in and out of favor. So I think part of what we wanted to discuss today was just what some of um, others think about factor timing, which Jack, I'll let you sort of take the lead on that in a second, um, but also how we've implemented factor timing or factor rotation in terms of strategies that we run here and the different factors we look at and how we actually construct those portfolios. But maybe to start, Jack, I know we we were talking before um, we just jumped on here about the different opinions out there from um, Rob Arnott, who we've had in the podcast, and also Cliff Asnas of AQR. So maybe if you want to give sort of just a quick summary of of what, you know, those guys sort of say when it comes to factor timing, and then we can get into our stuff a little bit more. Sure. Well, this is going to be timing week on uh, on excess returns because we've got we've got factor timing for this, and then on on Thursday we have uh, Matt Bartolini talking about sector rotation strategies. So uh, this is this is going to be timing week for us. Although although the research in both cases may be a little bit you know dicey one way or the other. At least we're, we're going to cover both of them this week and talk about maybe different ways you might go about doing it. But yeah, so you know, factor timing is challenging. Um, you know, and, and it's hard too because for most investors, if you just talk about the idea that I can buy a factor like value when it's out of favor. It seems to be like something you should be able to do. It, it follows the principles we're all taught as investors, which is I want I should buy something that's out of favor, you know, and and I should be able to benefit from doing that. By when other people are going one way, I should be able to buy the thing that's out of favor, and I should be able to do well with that. And so, in theory, it makes a lot of sense. But then, when you get into the academic research, it's much more dicey. Um, you know, you definitely have differences of opinion of whether you can actually take a factor timing strategy and implement it in the real world and be successful. And you mentioned Arnott and Asnes, and you know they've probably been the two biggest people disagreeing on this. Although when, when we had uh, Rob on the podcast, he said, you know, he, he said he thought the difference between the two of them was not as much as people think. But so Rob wrote a paper, Timing Smart Beta Strategies, of course, buy low, sell high. Uh, and I think that was in 2016. I'm not positive. But what he, what, he, what he did in that is he took, he sort of created two different strategies. One strategy, he used value to time factors. So the cheap, he would hold the three cheapest factors at any given point. And then the other one, he used momentum. So he would hold the three with the most momentum. And what he found is that value worked better. So momentum did not beat an equal weighted portfolio of the factors. Value did beat an equal weighted portfolio of the factors, but it did not beat it on a risk-adjusted basis. So value got an excess return, but when you put risk into the equation, the sharp ratio was worse. So it did it by taking on additional risk. 
Now, as Ness wrote a paper, contrarian factor timing is deceptively difficult, and he sort of took the conclusion, the opposite conclusion. Um, you know, his main conclusion was trying to time with these factors with value is very, very difficult, and there may not be any value whatsoever in, in attempting to do that. Um, and then AQR wrote a different paper, uh, Factor Momentum Everywhere, and they more endorsed a momentum-type approach. So they found that you could uh, – I'll read from the paper. Factor momentum adds significant incremental performance to investment strategies that employ traditional momentum, industry momentum, value, and other commonly studied factors. The results demonstrate that the momentum phenomenon is driven in large part by persistence and common return factors and not solely by persistence and idiosyncratic stock performance. So in general, what he's saying is you know, uh, Arnott was more in favor of maybe a value approach to doing this. Asnes and, and AQR were more in favor of a momentum approach. So we'll talk about the different ways to do that later. But So the, the bottom line here is the, the results here are very, very mixed um, in terms of whether the academic research supports this or not. But I think the one thing for everybody to keep in mind in general is if you're going to do this, it's very, very difficult. And so it's probably not for most investors uh, because you're going you're gonna to go through periods where you're completely wrong, just like when you follow any factor. You know, you're going to go through periods where your strategy doesn't work. And for, for most people, that's probably the benefit of this is probably not worth that cost. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, Nir Kassarde, they wrote an interesting article about sort of the performance of price to book and how um, basically it's you know been a really bad uh, performer in terms of the value factor uh, for a long period of time now. And so, you know, that's that's sort of one of the one of the many issues with sort of this factor timing thing is I guess on the value camp, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but you know, a lot of times value in the academic world is considered, um, or they use book to market or, or the inverse of that is price to book. That's what, that's what we say. And he was just kind of showing in the article how long of a period price to book has actually been a relative underperformer. And so, you know, that's something that I think when you're, when you're thinking about factor timing and you're thinking about value specifically, um, you know, that's one of the things that is, is, is probably that has contributed to the, to, to the difficulty in this is not only is, can value go through long term periods of underperformance, but when you look at something like the price to book as a measure of value, you know, it's really, at least in this day and age, you know, it has some potential weaknesses. Yeah, and it's like the, the more levels deep you get in your timing, the more difficult it gets. So what you're really talking about there is metric timing, which is even a step below factor timing, which is even harder to do because now you, you have to try to figure out, all right, price to book is out of favor. Should I be buying price to book relative to the other factors? And we, we don't do that. You know, we, we use a composite, as we'll talk about later. We use a composite to measure value. But again, some people may think you can do that, but that, that's very difficult to try to figure out, you know, can I time these metrics within a certain factor? Right. So let's talk about, the, for, from our standpoint, the different types of factors that one could look at to uh, potentially factor time. We've, we've obviously talked about and we do a value factor rotation strategy. Um, there's momentum, quality, low volatility, and maybe you could this growth or fundamental momentum type factor. So we, we don't do all of those, but those are the ones that one may consider. Uh, you've got size in there as well, right? Yeah, so what we wanted to do, the first step in, in trying to create this, you know, we built these ETF, you know, rotation portfolios that we track on Validia. And the first thing we wanted to do is figure out which factors do we want to use in general, which factors do we want to choose from. And so what we did is we picked, you know, we use size, we use value, we use momentum, we use quality, we use low volatility, and we use growth. And growth would probably be the controversial one there because if all the ones I mentioned before typically have an, ex an excess return over time, although size, people may debate it. Um, the reason we use growth, and we'll get into this in a little while, is when you're – 
we're not holding any of these factors all the time. So despite the fact that growth underperforms over the long term, there are certain situations where growth can benefit a portfolio. You know, growth can be cheap at certain times or certain macro indicators could indicate now might be a time to hold growth. And so although growth underperforms over the long term, we included it here to allow our system when the factors we're using said this might be a time to have a position in growth, we wanted to allow it to choose growth as an option, even though growth has long term underperformance. All right. So so let's let's come up a level and talk about the selection universe that we have to choose from. Um, and if you could maybe just explain that so we can start there and then we can come down into, you know, the different ways that we construct these portfolios. Yeah, so we, we listed five major factors we use. And so and then we listed size sort of as a, as a separate thing. And so what we do is Invesco has ETFs that are small, mid and large cap for each of those factors. So they have a small value, a mid value, a large value. Same thing with quality, same thing with momentum. And so what we did is we built a 15 ETF selection universe. Each, for each factor, we have three different versions, small, mid, and large. And so that's the starting point. The starting point is these 15 ETFs. And then what we're doing is we're taking the things we're going to talk about in a little while, and we're whittling those down to five individual ETFs we'll hold at any given point using, again, value, momentum, and macro factors, which we'll talk about in a little while. So that's the idea is we take the we find ETFs that encompass all the major factors at all the different sizes, and then we use that as our starting point, and then we whittle them down using whatever system we're using for the any given portfolio. Right. So it's 15 ETFs across size, value, growth, momentum, quality, and low volatility. And then from there, we come into trying to get exposure um, to other basically factors. So let's let's step into the value sort of factor rotation model, because this is this will be the first one that we discuss, and it, um, I think it's the one that's probably the easiest maybe to, to understand. So it starts by looking across those ETFs, and then we're basically using, and I'll let you kind of, um, I'll let you expand on this, but we're using um, a value composite or a bunch of different value metrics, and we're looking at the holdings within the ETFs to try to find the five ETFs that exhibit the most uh, value um, relative to whatever we're looking at. So when you deal with using value for factor rotation, typically what you're dealing with is this concept of spreads. And so you're not saying, you know, the value ETFs are always going to probably be cheaper, although they might not be right now than the momentum ETFs because momentum is heavily in the value. But in general, the value ETFs are always going to be cheaper than all the other ETFs. So you don't want to just use straight value. What you use is spreads. And so what a spread is is very simply like if you take the, in our case, we're using the top 20%. If you take the best stocks with any given factor and then you take the worst stocks with any given factor, you look at the spread in valuation between them. So if just to use a simple example of value and growth, you know, when, when the spread between value and growth is very wide, like it is right now, typically value is very cheap. So a rotation model would want to consider value. When that spread gets very narrow, a rotation model might want to consider growth because the spread, you're not really paying up for growth because the spread is narrower. So we do that with all the individual factors. And like you said, we use a composite for the same reason you talked about before with price to book struggling. You know, we don't want to get into the business of trying to pick what the right valuation metric is. And so we just use a composite of all the major valuation metrics. We look at the spreads between the, the best and the worst using that factor with that composite. And, and that's how you determine for, for a value portfolio, that's how you determine the ETFs or the factors that end up in the portfolio. So it is interesting that just recently some momentum and actually a low volatility uh, ETF have come into this model. Um, 
So to your point, you know, those spreads because of the maybe relative underperformance and momentum and especially low vol, you know, you know, um, it's you know not been a great year. So I guess those spreads have come in and this the value model specifically, the factor rotation value model has has sniffed out some of those. Right. So low vol is a good example because low vol was very expensive for a very long time. Um, because low vol stocks did very well. But what happened in the wake of the coronavirus is low vol stocks have done horribly. Um, you know, while the, these higher risk, you know, smaller stocks have done very well, low vol stocks have done poorly. And so those spreads have, have narrowed. So low, low vol stocks, low vol itself as a factor is now cheaper than it was before. Um, and so low vol, our system picked up on that and said, all right, low vol is attractive. And so one of the ETFs in, in the system now is a low vol ETF because low vol got a lot cheaper. So the, you know, the best low vol stocks are now cheaper relative to the worst low vol stocks and so that they become a more attractive opportunity. So let's talk about the way that we build the momentum model. Basically, this is looking again across those 15 factor ETFs, which are size, value, growth, momentum, quality, and low volatility. What we're doing is we're um, looking at those ETFs through multiple momentum metrics and we're selecting um, the top five ETFs um, that basically score highest based on a composite like momentum rank? Right. So momentum is a lot simpler because we're not dealing with spreads or anything like that. Effectively, what we're doing is you rank all the ETFs based on their momentum and you buy the top ones. And so the only thing that makes it a little more complicated is we're not using one period for momentum. Just like with value, we want to use a composite of different things. So we're using a variety of periods to create a composite of the ETF performance. And then the one, using that composite the ETFs that have the most momentum on any given rebalancing we're doing, those are the ones that go into the portfolio. So we're, we're sort of getting at what AQR talked about in that uh, Factor Momentum Everywhere paper. We're using the factors that have the most momentum and trying to use a variety of periods to do it, and, and those end up comprising the portfolio. Um, just as an example, can you just, what are some of those intermediate term momentum? Do we use like a three month or what's the... Yeah, we're using, you know, we'd be using 12 minus one. We'd be using, you know, some, some periods around that just to make sure we're not just relying on a one-year momentum. Yeah, it's not, it's not a very complicated thing that we're using a lot of them, but we, we do want to, you know, what can happen sometimes is you can have momentum over one period and it might not be verified in the other periods. Um, and so we just want to make sure we're, we're getting a broad measure of momentum here and we're not just judging it with one period. The next one was um, the macro type of, factor rotation model. And this is interesting because this kind of plays into our conversation with Matt Bartolini, where we sort of were asking him about uh, selecting ETFs, sector-based ETFs based on um, macro-related uh, data points. Um, and our macro model includes things like GDP growth, inflation, the slope of the yield curve, um, to try to find the ETFs that may be benefiting the most by um, the macro you know, overall environment. It's This is very different in the sense because it's more of a top-down selection process versus the other ones I think are more bottom-up. Um, but uh, we wanted to, I think, create it and, and run it and develop it because there are some investors that I think this, this macro-type strategy um, appeals to them. And so it's one of the factor rotation models that we do offer. Yeah, so certain, you know, certain factors have performed better in certain types of macroeconomic environments. And before I talk about this, we should take a step back. And this is probably the weakest of the three. So you know, when we talked about AQR and we talked about uh, research affiliates, we didn't talk about macro factors because they, they don't really do that. So I would say value and momentum are much stronger, and this macro stuff is a little bit weaker. But we did see some value in it, particularly when used in a composite, which we'll get to in a little while. So 
uh, we, we did include it in what we're doing. And, and the idea is, here is let's see where we are in the economic cycle and how things are changing. And then let's try to get, you know, invest in the factors that might do well in that type of period. So like in an expanding economy, you might see value do it very well. You know, in an economy that's struggling and declining, you might see something like low volatility be a better place to be. And so what we're doing is we are determining, you know, what is the rate of change in inflation? What is the rate of change in economic growth? And we're sort of setting up quadrants. So are both of those positive or both of them negative or are they mixed? And then for each quadrant, you have certain types of factors that do better than others. And so your score is being adjusted based on which quadrant you're on. And then we sort of have a separate thing, which is these bonus type criteria. Like a good example is the high yield spread. So this is based on work from Verdad, uh, Dan Rasmussen. Um, you know, they found that basically when the high yield spread gets really, really wide, that can be a really good opportunity to invest in value. And they turned out they were very right about that because that happened um, in the coronavirus crisis. And it's been a great time for value since then. So we have sort of these bonus criteria like that. So it, that's a one-off situation that doesn't happen that often. But when it does happen, our, our macro score gets sort of a bonus points for the fact that some of these one-off things have happened. Um, so th that's the general idea is we're trying to figure out where we are in the economic cycle and figuring out which factors might work best there. And then there's these other kind of one-off things that, you know, that might enhance it with bonus points. And then we have this fourth category, which is really just the composite of those three other categories. So we're using value, evaluation, momentum, and the macro factors. And we're selecting the ETFs that score highest based on sort of a composite score, ranking all of those um, and then looking for the top five that have the best, you know, overall average score among those three different factor areas. Right. We try not to draw too many conclusions. You know, our, we want to present as much data as possible. So when we did this, we didn't want to say values best or macros best or momentum's best. We wanted to do portfolios with all of them. So we have a value one, we have a momentum one, we have a macro one. But then we also want to look at the idea of what if you combine them all together? And, and you have a, like you said, a composite system where you can take each rank and take the, take the ETS with the highest rank across all three of them. And, you know, that becomes your composite portfolio. So we, we present data back to 2006 for all of them. And what's interesting is if, if you look at what, what's happened at least so far, um, we would back up what AQR said in their data. The, the number one performer is momentum on its own. Um, and then number two is this composite approach. Um, that doesn't mean that's what it'll be going forward, but we found more efficacy, at least since 2006, using momentum to time factors. And then the second one has been the idea of using all of them together. So, you know, for me personally, I would probably, you know, I would probably have more faith in all of them together just because I like spreading my bets across all kinds of different things and who knows what's going to happen in the future. But it is interesting that so far momentum has been the best. Yeah. And so just a few other, I guess, portfolio characteristics or implementation um, things is that, you know, we, we do run. So when we when we run these portfolios, we run them as long only strategies, meaning they're always invested or we have these factor models with um, a trend following overlay. So that gets, you know, a little bit more complicated, even in the sense that we can move and flex in and out of the market based on this, this overlay um, that's using moving averages uh, for the most part to determine when the portfolio is in or out of these um, different ETFs. Um, the other thing that's probably worth pointing out here in the way that we run and track these strategies is we do do a monthly rebalance. So that means on a 28 day cycle, you know, this new e the system is running again and the ETFs are being selected based on their valuation, momentum or macro different factors. So it's, it's these portfolios are pretty active and especially when you overlay trend in there, which adds a risk element, um, it, it can add a risk element if it gets it wrong. If it gets it right, of course, it, it helps the returns. Um, but 
trend following doesn't always do that um, or doesn't do that actually the majority of the time even. Um, but so anyways, those are just a few other things in terms of how we run these strategies. If you were to look at those on our site, um, what you would what you would find and what trend actually means because we do run them with trend. Yeah, you know, just to sum up the whole thing, I mean, I think, you know, we're not necessarily advocates of factor timing, but we are advocates of, of data and, and testing and, you know, looking at results. And so, you know, although, I, I, like I said at the beginning, I don't think factor timing is probably right for most people because it can be very difficult to do and, and the research is mixed as to whether it works. You know, we, we wanted to look at the data and say, all right, what works over time? And we wanted to get the, the best version of that we could find. And then we, we like to track it in the future and see what actually happens. And so that's the idea with these is we're tracking these in real time and we'll see over time how they work you know, rotating among these factory ETFs. Great. So thank you guys for checking us out. Hopefully this was valuable and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.